Matthew chapter 27 is the portion of the word that the Lord has for us today. Matthew 27. Before we look at this text, I wanted to say that probably the most succinct statement in all of the Bible on the Christian message, the Christian gospel, has got to come from one of the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that he delivered to that church what he also had received, this account, this message, what he calls the good news or the gospel. He says, I'm giving you this as of first importance. This primary in all of the things that I'm teaching you, this is foundational. And he goes on to outline four basic elements of that gospel message that had been given to him by the eyewitnesses and that he was now passing on to this next generation. The first element of the gospel was that Christ died. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that that is good news because his death was like no other in all of human history. It was unique. And that death was unique because it was substitutionary. In fact, Paul says it this way, Christ died for our sins, on account of our sins, in our place, on our behalf. Jesus died in the place of sinners. And I want to tell you this morning, I want to tell you again, that your only hope before a holy God is that someone has stood in your place who can withstand the judgment of God for you, who has undertook the penalty of your sin in his own body and has lived the kind of life, the righteous life that you should have lived, so that when you stand before the eyes of the almighty, fiery, holy judgment of God, you will not be consumed, but you will be received. It will be only because of the Lord Jesus Christ taking your place, dying for your sins and standing in your stead. Paul said, the gospel is Christ died for our sins and that his death was in accordance with all of the prophecies of the Old Testament in accordance with all of the figures and the types that the Old Testament laid out for us, his death was according to the Scripture. And then there's a second element that he highlights as part of the gospel message, that Christ died for our sins and that he was what? That he was buried. That he was buried. This is a not insignificant part of the gospel message. It is, as Paul says, of first importance. So we still confess together that he descended to the dead. This is a part of Christian gospel confession. And it is the focus of Matthew's text here and of our reflection this morning. So if you would look with me at the text for today, Matthew 27, verses 55 through 66. It actually begins at the cross and then moves into the garden where the tomb was. It says that at the cross there were many women. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. 
among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the preparation for the Passover, the day after, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, my wife and I are a little bit strange, um, and I I appreciate you not saying amen to that, but uh, we, we like to wander through old graveyards. And I don't, maybe that's not so strange. Maybe you like to do that as well, to look at the, the tombstones and the, the things that are etched upon those. And our favorite ones are the graves that really tell a story. And maybe something that someone wrote that just captures the essence of that person's life. Or maybe it just brings questions to your mind that just make you want to know that person or imagine the the things that must have taken place in the course of their life. Well, there is no grave that tells a more profound story in all of the history of humankind than the tomb of Jesus Christ. And it is that story that is unfolded here for us in this text Before we actually look at the text, I do want to address a side question that comes often to people's minds, and that is this. Where was Jesus' soul? Where was his spirit for those three days that his body was in the tomb? What was going on during that period of time? You ever wondered about that? And and the, the truth is that the Bible doesn't really focus on those questions, but it does give what I think are some hints. I can tell you one thing, that Jesus Christ was not suffering in hell during those days. That has been a position that some people have put forward. But on the cross, in under the hand of the judgment of God, 
suffering for all of that time, and at the end he cries out, it is what? It is finished. And he looks at the thief on the other cross who has repented for his sins, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now he's not suffering these three days. Instead, our Lord suffered the unimaginable, eternal weight of judgment compressed, as it were, all of the judgment of God focused like the beams of the sun focused through a magnifying glass to a single point of burning judgment upon his son in those hours as he hung on the cross. Enough for it to be more than sufficient for God to say that your sins are paid. There is perhaps a possible reference to Christ's activity, though, during that intermediate state between his death and his resurrection. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, we looked at it when we went through 1 Peter together. Peter there seems to, to indicate that during Christ's entombment, that is, while his body was in the tomb, that his spirit went into the realm of the dead, specifically the realm of fallen spirits, sinful fallen spirits, and there Christ boldly proclaimed his victory over Satan and sin and death. And as Philippians chapter 2 says, he is Lord over all of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Dead and alive, he is Lord over men and spirits and over all. Well, that may not satisfy all of our curiosity. And it is an amazing thing to think about, but amazing as it is, it's not what Matthew focuses on, it's not what the Gospels focus on with regard to the burial of our Savior. Instead, Matthew points our attention to three important elements of the burial of Jesus Christ. And the first is that he draws our attention to the eyewitnesses to Christ's burial. He wants us to think about those women who were eyewitnesses to the burial. In verse 59, um, I'm going to jump down there to start with. Verse 59, he, uh, he tells us about a man by the name of Joseph. Joseph from Arimathea, who takes the body of Jesus down from the cross, wraps it in linens, and puts it into the tomb, has his men roll the stone in front of the tomb, and then leaves with his company. And during all of this, verse 61 says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And Luke even adds a little bit more to this. He says that, they, quote, they saw the tomb and even how the body was laid out in the tomb. They saw it all. These women who were there at that gravesite, they saw where the tomb was. They saw and watched the hasty preparations that were made of the body before the sun set and Sabbath began. Uh, they would return to finish those preparations on Easter Sunday morning. 
I want you to notice, too, that not only are these women at the tomb, but these are, in fact, the same women who were eyewitnesses at the cross. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus died on the cross, and we have all of these records of what he said and what he did. His disciples had had scattered. How do we really know? And part of the answer is that we have the eyewitness testimony of these very same women. If you look up in verse 55 now, so back up. So we saw that they were at the tomb, right? Now we go back to this account of Jesus on the cross in verse 55, still speaking of the place where he was crucified, says that there were many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Now we tend, when we think of Jesus' disciples, we tend to think of the the apostles, the 12 apostles, right? We think of these men, but in fact, Jesus had many other apostles, excuse me, many other disciples, including many who were women as well as men. And these women uh, and many of the disciples had apparently made the journey from with Jesus from Galilee down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And in Luke chapter 8, Uh, we find that the women of this company, some of whom were well-to-do, that they provided for Jesus and the apostles out of their means. In fact, one of them is referred to as Herod's, quote, household manager. Perhaps she was a a wealthy woman um, with her connections, um, with her uh, uh, resources. She was able to help support these men in their full-time ministry. Um, especially uh, her Lord. And, you know, the truth is that God has often used those with means to care for his people, for his church, and for her ministers. And if you have been given much, then it has been for the purpose that you would provide for the work of Christ, just as these women did. Verse 56 says that among these women who were disciples of Jesus and supporters of our Lord and the apostles were three who are identified here in this verse. One, Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala. Magdala is a town on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, not too far from Capernaum where Jesus had his headquarters. Uh, Luke uh, tells us, Uh, an intriguing part of the history about Mary Magdalene, that she was actually one who had been demon-possessed before she became a disciple of Jesus. In fact, she had been possessed of seven demons, such an incredible stronghold. I'm sure this woman had, had wished to be freed from this oppression so many times, and finally she met the Son of God, who, with authority over all things, cast these tormentors out of her and set her free and brought her to himself, and she was never the same. I mean, you remember the the story Jesus told, the one who has been forgiven much loves much, right? And she was devoted to him, followed him, and the apostles supported and helped, sat at his feet, learned, and I'm sure discipled others as well. Then it also identifies another one of these women followers, Mary the mother of James. This is the lesser-known James of the apostolic company. So his mother, um, he also had a brother apparently named Joseph or Joseph. 
This is probably the other Mary that Matthew later on talks about who's sitting by the tomb. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary that is the mother of James and Joseph. Um, And then thirdly, at the cross in verse 56, there is this uh, woman who is the mother of what's called the sons of Zebedee. That's just the way they were known. We call them James and John, uh, the, the, the sons of thunder, sometimes they're called. So here is the wife of Zebedee, apparently. Mark says her name was Salome, and she is also there uh, at the cross. And what we're going to see is is this intriguing fact that not only were these women at the cross and at the tomb, but when we come to chapter 28, we'll find that it is, in fact, these same women who are the first to bear eyewitness testimony to Jesus alive again from the grave. In other words, there is in these women, in these eyewitnesses, a remarkable continuity of testimony from the cross, through the grave, and into the resurrection. A testimony that because of its remarkable continuity that you ought to believe. This is God's ordained testimony to bear witness to these earth-shaking events where God and men come together in the person of Christ. And it is to be believed. There have been many skeptics, of course. There was a well-known professor at Harvard back in the uh, early 1900s, who was uh, notoriously skeptical of the miraculous things in the Bible, the supernatural elements of the Scripture, Uh, didn't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, Did you know that there are professors like that in so-called Christian institutions? Yeah, there absolutely are. Hard to believe in some ways that somebody would want to go and proclaim a text that he doesn't really believe is, is from God uh, or is trustworthy in every respect, but that is the case. Well, his explanation for the apparent resurrection of Christ is that the women were mistaken, that they went to the wrong tomb, that they got turned around, that they didn't know where Jesus was buried, and they got wrong directions. But I want you to carefully note again and remember this, For when you hear things like that, friends, to remember that Matthew makes much of this fact that they were there when he was being prepared for burial. They watched his body being brought into the tomb. They took note of how it was laid out. This is incredible eyewitness testimony. You know, it's true. Unbelief will always find a way to explain away evidence. That's just the way our sinful hearts work. We are, because of human sinfulness, and and you're just going to have to accept this, because of human sinfulness, we look at evidence in such a way that, that skews it and dismisses it when we ought to believe it. And this is true um, for skeptics all around the world who have dismissed these Uh, eyewitnesses, God rather is instructing you to trust his chosen witnesses and to allow their credible testimony 
to inform your understanding about what happened. You know, one more striking thing, I think, about the eyewitness testimony of the burial is the prominent place that these women play in the verification of gospel history. These women, you you probably are aware that women in the ancient world were not always respected. In fact, often were looked down upon, were considered um, uh, as less important, unreliable, untrustworthy, weak, foolish, or silly sometimes. Maybe that's because men being naturally physically stronger and sinful tend to abuse their power over weaker humans. Perhaps it's even because men, having been chosen by God to be heads of families and leaders of homes, nevertheless, in their sinful perversion of that, also abuse it by dominating their families rather than leading them, by failing to appreciate those who are not visibly in charge. Isn't that the way it is with humanity? Sinful humanity tends to hold highly those who are visibly in charge and to be dismissive of people with no power. And so it was perhaps that women became uh, came to be viewed as of lesser importance and lesser less significant in terms of their testimony. But God, in his wisdom, chooses the quote-unquote foolish things of the world to confound those who think that they're wise. And in this case, his chosen testimony, eyewitness testimony, to the death, burial, and resurrection of his only son were these women whom he called to this task. God does use um, the foolish of the world to confound those who think they're wise. And the Lord often used women in the founding of his church. Um, You think of people like Lydia, who was Paul's first convert at Philippi. And she opened her home to the missionaries, and that became their base of operations, and the gospel went forth in a mighty way from Philippi. Or think of a woman like Phoebe, who was a servant of the Sancrean church. She was so faithful, in fact, that when she was with Paul, and Paul sent her on an errand for him and probably entrusted to her care the initial handwritten letter that we call the book of Romans in our Bible. She brought it to the church in Rome so that one preacher said that, uh, that, that Phoebe carried with her the, the reformation in her handbag. This is the way God uses what are sometimes people who are dismissed and and uses them in mighty ways in his church, like people like Prissa or Priscilla, she's sometimes called, who along with her husband Aquila privately tutored the eloquent preacher Apollos 
into a, quote, more accurate understanding of the way of God. Here's a godly woman who knows the word and, uh, and is a, a great influence for the furtherance of, of the church. Or women like Lois and Eunice, who may not have had any uh, public recognition except that Paul looked at these women, this grandmother and mother, and said, you have done so much for the church because you have taught young Timothy from his childhood the word of God. And now Timothy is pastoring and shepherding churches all over Asia. Romans chapter 16, Paul sends greetings to 10 different faithful Christian women, among whom were Mary, who, quote, worked hard for you, Tryphena and Tryphosa, perhaps sisters who were, quote, workers in the Lord, and one woman whose name is Junia or Unia, who apparently was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. I want to tell you that today, just as much as then, much of the work of Christ is carried on by faithful, godly women. And every church ought to be thankful for that. In the providence of God, these women were eyewitnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. The second thing Matthew takes, wants us to take note of in this text is the unusual nature of Christ's burial. Verses 57 through 60. Matthew identifies a guy by the name of Joseph. This is not Joseph, Jesus' father. Joseph, this is Joseph from Arimathea which is a town nearby to Jerusalem. Uh, Joseph was also, Matthew says, a disciple of Jesus. Mark tells us, actually, that he was a, a respected member of the council, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, that same Sanhedrin that had just condemned Jesus to death. Um, Luke tells us, though, that he was, quote, a good and righteous man who did not consent to their decision or their actions. John fills in the gaps a little bit more by saying that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he was fearful of the Jews and what it would mean for him. But now, in this moment when his Savior is crucified, the Lord does such a work in his heart that strengthens him in his faith. And Mark says he, quote, took courage and went and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And that did take courage, because there was a real danger in being associated with this person who was considered to be an insurrectionist. There's certainly a danger for Joseph in losing his place in society that he has worked all his life to build, and there may, be, may even be a danger to his life. But in the grace of God, he's strengthened in his faith, and he goes to Pilate. He asks and receives the body of Christ. Apparently, his boldness also rubbed off on one of his fellow council members, another member of the Sanhedrin. We uh, know well, his name is Nicodemus. He's the one, you remember, who came to Jesus by night, perhaps so as not to be identified or to make too much of a, of a public uh, knowledge that he was visiting Jesus from Nazareth. But the other Gospels tell us that Nicodemus joined with Joseph in procuring and preparing 
the body of our Lord for burial. Nicodemus also, in his own right, was a wealthy man. John says that he brought 75 pounds worth of very expensive spices and ointments to help to prepare uh, the body for burial. So Joseph and Nicodemus, Joseph probably with his men, uh, got the body down from the cross, took it to the tomb, buried it in his own tomb. Um, those tombs, I don't know if you've ever, you've probably seen pictures for sure, of, at least of the outside, but when you go into one of those um, ancient tombs, and there are some in Israel that you can actually still visit um, that have been un, un, unearthed, um, in there, there are cut out in the stone um, shelves on which to lay out the bodies. And then over time, as those bodies decay and rot away and there are only bones left, um, the people would come back into there and would collect the bones and place them in little niches that were cut out, usually in a jar or some kind of container in, in a niche that were called ossuaries all throughout the, sometimes in the same tombs as well, to make room for um, others who would pass on and whose bodies would be laid in those tombs. And apparently Joseph had had a tomb uh, cut into uh, the stone for himself, his family. Um, the fact that is, uh, the fact is that this is a new tomb uh, that had never been used, and uh, that I think helps us, uh, I think it makes it difficult to explain how it is that the women could have been so mistaken or confused when they went into the tomb. Some people have argued that they went in and they, they looked in the wrong place, the wrong shelf, the wrong compartment, and they thought that the body was gone, but it was really in another space in that tomb that they just that they hadn't explored. Uh, and, and so they, they thought that he had, had risen. But this, in fact, Matthew records as a brand new tomb. There is no other bodies there. His body is either there or it's not there, right? There are so many things like this. If you really begin to think about the details of the burial of Christ, so many things that God orchestrated to give testimony to the truth of what he was doing, that it's like intentional blindness to miss it. But what may be perhaps the most unusual thing of all is that is that Jesus was buried in a tomb at all, right? Because he was crucified. And normally crucifixion victims were left to rot, to be eaten by scavengers. Um, or in the case of the Jews who knew from the scriptures that it was a curse to leave a, a condemned man hanging on the cross, the concession was made and the bodies were taken down from the crosses and dumped unceremoniously into um, unmarked graves. Certainly, they would not be treated with honor and dignity and given an honorable burial wrapped in spices and a brand new stone-cut tomb in a, in, a, in a garden setting. This is not what you would expect at all, right? Having died the death he died and then being given this kind of burial in at the hands of very wealthy, very well-connected men. But this unusual turn of events is exactly what was predicted seven centuries earlier by the prophet Isaiah 
in Isaiah chapter 53, and this is the passage we read earlier, right, which speaks of the vicarious, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, the text says, And they made his grave with the wicked, and he was with a rich man in his death. Although the Messiah was condemned as a criminal, he was with the wicked. He was buried in this expensive garden tomb belonging to a rich man. I think this is is really just a remarkable thing. And especially, I think, when you you really grapple with what's being said here. And and it's, it's, I think, obscured a little bit in the ESV translation. Um, if you have a different translation of the Bible at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, it'll read a little bit differently. Um, the New American Standard Bible, um, I'll give you the, well, let me tell you the differences. There, there's a Hebrew letter that goes at the beginning of one of the words, like a prefix. And then there's a two-letter Hebrew preposition. And it's those two things that make all the difference in translation. And the meaning of each one is ambiguous. It could go one way, it could go the other way, Right. But in light of the intimate connection between Isaiah 53 and all that's said there and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, I think that the New American Standard Translation in this case really nails it when they translate it this way. And his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence and there was no, neither was, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. In other words, the reversal of fortunes here from his death to his honorable burial was part of the testimony of God, part of the God's vindication of the righteousness of this man who died. But in either case, the bigger point is this, that Christ's burial, just like his crucifixion, and like his trial, and like his birth, and like almost every other aspect of Jesus' life, was one fulfillment of ancient prophecy after another, after another, after another. And if you're struggling to believe, then I want to urge you to consider these prophetic fulfillments. Consider how many things were spoken about Jesus the Messiah hundreds of years before his birth, his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement, all of these spoken about before. In fact, the whole of the scripture is setting us up to receive Christ when he comes. Our church forefathers in the confessions of faith that come down to us through history identify as one of the great testimonies to the truth of the Bible the unity of its parts. The way that the Bible comes together to point us to Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. Think about it. The Bible is not a book that dropped completed to us down from heaven. It's a book consisting of letters and poems and writings and visions and oral um, revelation that got inscribed and all of these things that, that have brought together 
across 1,500 years by 40 different human authors in three different languages, and yet they tell one single, incredibly woven, intricately woven story that paints the picture of God's salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is chock full of these prophecies which point the way to see some, in fact, some very specific things about the life and death of Jesus from Nazareth. It is an amazing book, and I think you have every right to have absolute confidence in these holy scriptures. And more than anything, we have confidence in them because they are the testimony of God himself. And I just ask you to open your ears and hear to open your heart and believe what God has testified about his son. that His son was, in fact, crucified on a cross, died, and was buried. And one more thing that the Spirit of God highlights through Matthew's record, particularly in this last paragraph. Now we're looking at verses 62 to 66. And I want you to see it for yourself. So look at that paragraph. And there are three times that Matthew uses this same terminology in order to make one main point in this last paragraph. You see it in verse 64. You may want to underline these. You see it in verse 64 when the Jewish leaders are speaking to Pilate and they they ask him to order his tomb to be made what? Secure. And then in verse 65, the next verse... When Pilate says to the guards, go make the tomb as what? As secure as you can, which is really ironic, right? (laughs) He says, it's as if God is saying, you can never make this tomb secure enough. But through the words of Pilate, make it as secure as you can. And then you see the same word again in verse 66. And they went and made the tomb secure. In other words, what is Matthew trying to highlight what does the Spirit of God want us to think about when we read this last paragraph. It is how they did everything in their power to to put a strict uh, guard on this tomb, to make it secure. And that happened, of course, at the instigation of the Jewish leadership. Verse 63, they go to Pilate and they said, hey, we remember how this imposter said that after three days he would rise again. How did they know that? Probably, my guess is that Judas reported that to them as he had heard it from the lips of our Lord Jesus himself. Of course, our Lord gave other indications even publicly. But they said, we remember that he made this prediction. So they said, order the tomb to be made secure for three days. Let's get past these three days. Put an arm guard out there, seal it, and so that people don't come and steal the body and say that he rose from the dead, because that would be worse for us than it was when Jesus was alive. They didn't, of course, exactly fear that Jesus would rise from the dead. They didn't believe that he was going to rise. But they were concerned that his purported resurrection would inspire uh, his followers. And so they persuaded Pilate to create two safeguards on that tomb in verse 66, the very last verse of the text. Number one, He put a seal on the tomb, which was likely hot wax that was poured along the edges of the stone opening and then impressed with a signet 
um, so that if anybody tampered with the tomb, put the stone away and put it back and tried to make it look like he came out, that, that it would be evident. And secondly, to set a watch on the tomb, to send a contingent of armed guards to stand watch by that tomb 24 hours a day. And of course, guards who lost track of their charges faced a really severe consequence, right? We know that, for example, from the account of Paul and Silas in the jail and the jail is shaken with an earthquake and all of the prisoners are free and the guard is is ready to kill himself. I mean, you don't do that unless you think the consequences for letting your prisoners escape is going to be worse. And so this was a really serious thing and uh, just a forbidding barrier to anybody who would try to uh, uh, mess with that Uh, tomb. Once again, I think it's really ironic that these measures that were designed by men to discourage the followers of Jesus actually, for us, only serve to verify the supernatural nature of the revelation. We look back at it, we say, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. People say, oh yeah, no, maybe something else happened. And we say, no, look, look what all of the safeguards that were put into place. You know, isn't that just like our Lord who uses the antagonism of his enemies to further his own purposes? And that's what he does here. Of course, there have been many skeptics. In the early 1800s, there was a German theologian who postulated without any evidence at all that Jesus on the cross just swooned. He he fell into a state of unconsciousness And when they put his body into the cool tomb that eventually he came back to consciousness, his body was found. Some uh, group of Jewish Essenes heard his body stirring and and removed his body from the tomb and took him and nursed him. Um, Many other theories have been given throughout history that someone or some group of people um, conspired to go and steal the body and uh, the dead body, and make it uh, look like Jesus was resurrected. One such um, source, uh, a Jewish source, purported from the 5th century A.D., but, but of course Matthew says that the, that, that story got had roots that went far back beyond the 5th century, all the way to the earliest days uh, when the rumor was being circulated that that is in fact exactly what happened. Of course, one of the big problems with these fanciful theories is that they have to get past a sealed tomb and a contingent of armed guards in the providence of God. You know, all of this eyewitness testimony and the testimony of fulfilled prophecy and the testimony by God's enemies of the strict security that was laid on this tomb, all of these things cry out for you to believe in the supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that really is the the message today, that you should believe, that you should believe 
not just these facts, astounding as they are, they have literally shaped human history. But not just the facts, but to believe in the one whom God approved, even in his darkest hour, even when they put his body into the tomb, the one to whom God himself bore witness. And I tell you this morning, if you don't believe, it's not evidence that keeps you from believing. It's the sinful human heart. But if you would let down your resistance, then God would forgive your sin and bring you into union with himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, my hope is that recounting of these events, these details has encouraged your faith, has reminded you again of the multiple testimonies that God has ordained and provided. He's been so gracious to us to condescend to us, to quote-unquote verify something that ought to be taken just at his bare word. But he has. He has given us so many reasons to believe. And it is my hope that your faith is encouraged and strengthened by them, as God, I'm sure, intended us to be. I think it is an amazing thing that the God who is higher than the highest heavens, who is the creator of all things, should condescend, should come down to be buried in the depths of his creation, the very world that he had made, spoken into existence. And now he leaves his highest throne and comes down to the lower parts, that is the earth, so that you, like Jesus Christ, might be raised again to the glory of fellowship and communion with the God of, of the Most High. It is a gracious condescension so that we might be lifted up. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this word today. And I pray that if there's any here who is skeptical, that you by these testimonies would convince them that you would open their eyes and their hearts and grant them new life, that they would believe what you have said. And Lord, I confess to you very honestly and freely that it seems no unbelievable thing to think that a body should be raised from the tomb when I consider that the holy God of all the universe should forgive a sinner like me. And I just pray that we would all come to receive and to experience the miraculous salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We pray it in his name. Amen.